Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. From the Milton Metz studio in the Radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Joe Wren from WFIU and WTIU. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 was passed 50 years ago this month and was the last legislative victory of the civil rights era. The law was twofold. It was supposed to stop racial discrimination in the procurement of housing and to actively promote racial integration. As it was an ambitious piece of legislation aimed at ending inequality where Americans live, how much has changed in our neighborhoods since that bill was passed. That's what we're going to talk about with our panelists today on Noon Edition and with our callers when you, uh, when you call in. But our guests are Samuel Kai, who's a Ph.D. candidate in the IU Department of Sociology here on the Bloomington campus. And uh, Richard Pierce is joining us by phone. He's Associate Professor of History and American Studies at the University of Notre Dame up in South Bend. You can follow us on uh, on the show in various ways. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Welcome to uh, our guests and welcome to you, Joe. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks for being here. Hi. Uh, I want to turn to our guest who's at Notre Dame first, Richard Pierce, and, and just ask, uh, ask you, Richard, to sort of you know, set the table for us. What's the, what's the Fair Housing Act of 1968? Why was it necessary? Why was it passed then? It's always difficult to ask a historian to set the table. I'll tell you that right now. It's very, <laughs> brevity is not our, not our long suit, but I'll try, I'll try to encapsulate two things. Um, it happened in April 1968. One was the assassination of Martin Luther King, and the second is the, is the passage of the Fair Housing Act. And they're intertwined. Um, two years before um, King was assassinated, he believed that racial segregation in housing made it possible for northern and southern city officials to provide different levels of service, everything from schools to hospitals to housing inspections, code enforcement, et cetera, and that and the black and, white, black and white neighborhoods could be served differently within the same municipality. So he pushed for what became a Fair Housing Act to end discrimination, as you said, but also to promote integration, which is another complicated piece of it. I think um, Johnson used uh, King's assassination very effectively and the same way he had used um, Kennedy's assassination in 63 to push for the Civil Rights Act 1954 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965. So there was pressure from below and also opportunity, uh, tragic opportunity, but opportunity nonetheless um, to, get the act, to get the act passed. So that's how it was passed. And what, it, what it, I think we'll, our discussion today will, you know, who knows where we'll go, but um, my understanding is that the very few things underpin American society more than housing. You know, we protect the houses. Uh, for most people, it's their greatest source of wealth. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Fair Housing Act has really tried to push against um, some people's intrinsic ideas about what it means to have a home and home and to protect its value. What was the uh, – can you uh, sort of fill us in on, on the – uh, the arguments, the debates of the times. I mean, the, the idea that the Fair Housing Act had to pass pass through Congress. Um, I suspect there was some debate. People on both sides of that fence. Well, not only was it, not only was it a debate, it was kind of there was, there was um, Supreme Court decisions. So the right to preserve segregation, either through racial covenants or legislation passed by municipalities, goes back to 1910s, and so. Baltimore, for instance, passed a Act in 1910 that was going to preserve segregation in communities by law. 1917 um, court decision ruled against it. I can't recall the case. The 1917 Supreme Court decision ruled against it. 
but not because it, not because it restricted African Americans' right to move where they wanted to move. That was the interesting thing. It was because the decision the decision came down because it prevented whites from selling their property as they wished. So that's why I'm saying I try to be brief, and you know right. you're pushing for more. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. So, so the debates are complicated because people's emotions and their wealth were tied up in housing. And that is that that I'm going back by going back to 1910. I completely ignore all of the stuff that came out of World War II veterans' benefits about the ways in which the federal government reinforced segregation. So I want the cause to be clear about this. In 1968 Fair Housing Act was not the first attempt by the government to interact into housing. They had done that already. The Federal Housing Administration had had prohibited um, developers from integrating properties if they wished to. So suburban properties could not get a federal housing loan unless they agreed to not allow blacks to move in. Mm -hmm. And so Richard Rothstein writes his great book called The Color of Law, which documents this very, very well about the ways in which the federal government and state and local municipalities reinforced segregation. So 1968 was a, was, a lot of people say that, well, that's when housing became an issue for the federal government. It was not. That was a corrective measure. And so many people fought against it, both North and South. Mm-hmm. I want to ask uh, Samuel Kai, he, he's been uh, sort of nodding along at, at times <laughs> during during um, your comments. So, so Samuel, how do you want to respond to that? Yeah, so I want to just build off uh, some of the things that Richard said. Um, you know, when we think about this issue, I want to advance uh, a thesis that's based on two points. You know, the first is that the Fair Housing Act, its first aims was to outlaw institutional individual acts of housing discrimination. Uh, and this is certainly something that is more... Uh, able to be regulated, right? When we uh, use things like audit studies to examine how housing discrimination differs among uh, real estate agents who decide to show homes to certain families but not to others, you know, this is something that hopefully, uh, if detected, can be resolved. Um, You know, some may debate uh, the teeth and the enforcement with which these things are, are enforced, but the idea is there that it can be regulated. Uh, But in the other side of this coin, I think, it's also important to discuss that there's a large portion of residential inequality that is more difficult to regulate, uh, namely the patterns of residential mobility or where households move and why they move. And so in contrast to something like housing discrimination, um, the detecting why people move and where they move and also uh, inspecting uh, which types of neighborhoods people avoid, uh, this is something that's harder to regulate because certainly, um, you know, we can't, the government can't dictate where people do and do not move. Um, and so... Yeah, whoa, 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 Samuel. Mm-hmm. Yes, they can. <laughs> they have. Right. They may, not, they may not be able to now, but they have done that. They have very, very much said, I, don't, I, I think you and I are in agreement here, they have very much said where people cannot move. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think here I'm talking um, a little bit more about, it's just uh, certainly stereotypes and beliefs about outgroups is something that at an individual level very much influence the types of residential inequality today. So yes, I'm very much in agreement uh, with the points that Robert made. Um, But here I want to discuss just a little bit about some of my research on white flight um, and how this equates to this second part of this, uh, the goals of the Fair Housing Act uh, and its efforts to achieve residential integration. Um, So Today, what's interesting about white flight or this phenomenon where white households choose to leave neighborhoods that have more than a token presence of non-white groups, uh, we're seeing two interesting shifts that are happening over the past several decades. So one is that um, when we commonly think about white flight, we think of it in terms of an urban to uh, suburban phenomenon. So in the, in the decades after the World War, certainly as, Rob, uh, as Richard mentioned, things like racial covenants and redlining allowed white families to leave these urban areas uh, and begin to accrue the wealth that was, in terms of housing, that was not afforded to uh, their black counterparts. Um, but today what we're seeing is that white flight is happening, is beginning to shift towards suburbs as non-white groups begin to achieve uh, unprecedented levels of suburbanization and begin to access, you know, these white picket fence type neighborhoods that are commonly associated with the American dream. Um, the second shift that's happening is that whereas we used to 
believe that white flight was namely um, a phenomenon that occurred in poorer neighborhoods, right? There's this counter argument about white flight that it may not necessarily be rooted in racial prejudice, but rather that white households, like all households, desire to live in stable and prosperous communities. Uh, but what my research uh, examines is when you actually go into suburban areas and examine the rates of white flight from both poor and middle class suburban communities, uh, we're actually finding now that white flight is more common in middle class neighborhoods than their poorer suburban counterparts. So what this allows us to do is say that, you know, uh, white flight is tied more so to racial than socioeconomic factors, at least when it pertains to suburban neighborhoods. Um, and ultimately, this has the effect of reproducing residential inequality by reshifting the very set of white flight mechanisms responsible for residential segregation to the places now where non-whites are beginning to enter um, and beginning to um, what they hope to find were integrated and stable communities. Mm-hmm. All right. If you want to join us on the show, we're talking about uh, some some interesting issues with fair housing and and how um, the Fair Housing Act has or hasn't worked and other other factors that are involved with with where people live uh, here on Noon Edition today. So if you want to join us, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Joe? So that was a, a lot of information to digest. I wonder there, Richard, did you want to respond to any of that? I have a question um, for Samuel. And I just, I just want because you know, you have a historian talking to it, a sociologist. So <laughs> it's a good mix. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, I don't think the disciplines are that you know distinctive. Except that we do more. Net, well, that's another discussion. We'll have coffee. <laughs> <laughs> So given that fact that the Brown study, Brown, working at Brown University, said that if we wanted to create true racial integration, we'd have to have 90% of black and Latino families move from where they currently are. Mm-hmm. So if the white flight that's taking place now from the suburbs, mm-hmm. which I presume is probably going to the cities, as we now are doing what uh, Colin Gordon said, we're replicating, we're replicating European segregation where whites are moving back into the center city and gentrifying those neighborhoods. What number of, of black families or non-white families in your, in your language, non-white families, um, is a tipping point? Um, sure. So this idea of tipping points uh, goes to this idea of what's called racial invasion and succession. Um, there's a thesis that states that past a certain tipping point, uh, white families perceive that Um, the influx of non-white households is going to destabilize their communities um, and then lead to, um, which then leads to white flight that in turn turns predominantly white communities into now segregated non-white neighborhoods. Um, So there has been research on specific tipping points. Um, Some have argued that it is a trend where white flight is accelerated when non-whites reach about 20%, and then it stabilizes, and then once neighborhoods exceed 60%, um, that then turnover is inevitable. But I would say within sociology, there has been pushback against this idea that, right, that this is a process that works universally and linearly. Um, certainly there have been, um, there's been research that has asked, you know, whether or not this is an inevitable phenomenon. And so, you know, there have been some research that has argued, okay, um, we see that there are at least a handful of communities that are integrated. Um, what are the predictors of stable and integrated communities? Um, and so this is still a growing body of research because, you know, the sobering reality is that the search for racial integration is still a very fragile movement. Um, but in terms of tipping points, uh, Richard, I hope that answers your question. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm it's difficult for me to speculate on a concrete tipping point because this is such a complex issue with many considerations, but uh, that's at least the kind of research we have on, on that particular question. Yeah, I guess I was trying to go to your research in particular because if you're measuring the flight, white flight, as you call it, in response or reaction or in just in the place of non-white neighbors, what has it been? Sorry, so... 
Um, what has been what has been the, what has been the percentage of non-white neighbors? Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, um, yeah. So when in my study, um, we can run these analyses where we say, okay, we predict the probability of white flight, and uh, at past that, what point does white flight become more likely? So in, in my study, what I found was that uh, that percentage was around 20 to 25 percent, um, and once. Uh, Hispanics and Asians in particular, once that percentage um, exceeded that threshold, uh, white flight was then more likely to become, uh, was more likely of an outcome in these middle class areas. Um, so that's what I found in my research, but there are some caveats there. Uh, my research examined just the top 150 metropolitan areas, so it may not be uh, relate directly to uh, rural areas, which are certainly uh, a large portion of U.S. neighborhoods across the country. Um, but yeah, that's generally what I found in my research. See, Bob, I told you that I warned you and Jill that this is a complicated topic. <laughs> it because, is. Oh, yeah. It because is. the term white flight was originally coined in relation to whites leaving neighborhoods where blacks particularly were moving into. And it wasn't, all, and I think for a long time, whites who did that were mischaracterized as just re- re- reacting to racial fears. But in reality, and this is where I'm borrowing heavily from Rothstein, um, the neighborhoods where blacks lived in, and it was by a fixed percentage by the homeowners loan corporation, a federal agency. Once they were redlined, and they were purposely redlined and said, you know, there are two, the X number of blacks that live in this community, therefore no housing loans will be made in that neighborhood. No, no insur- insurance providers were reluctant to, to, to get insurance in that neighborhood. And then another thing came in was contract buyers. So no mortgages could be written in those neighborhoods. So blacks still moving to those neighborhoods, they moved into those neighborhoods as contract buyers, not mortgage holders. And so for your listeners, I think it's important to make a distinction between a contract holder, a contract sale, and a mortgage sale. Mm-hmm. In a contract sale, every month you have to make a payment. If you do not make a payment, one, if you miss one payment, you can be kicked out. So consequently, if you met financial trouble, you may not paint your house. You may not put a new roof on your house. Instead, you may you do whatever you could, have bake sales, cake sales, whatever, to make your contract payment. Inevitably, people couldn't do it, and the depreciation of those houses went down dramatically. There were white neighbors who may have wanted to stay there for proximity, for tradition, close to their, their parish or their church. They may have wanted to stay there, but those neighborhoods went down so badly and so fast. They moved out not because of racial fears, but because of economic fears. And so this is why I want to broaden discussion to not just include individual actors, but also how the state played into individual actions. Good. Uh, Richard, could you define redlining for us? So the Homeowners Loan Corporation went through every major metropolitan neighborhood in the community, including Indianapolis for that matter, and they said, I, they used local real estate agents and the local real estate brokers, and they said, define these neighborhoods, and one of the considerations, the primary consideration was, what was its racial population? If it exceeded a certain percentage, they literally drew a red line around those neighborhoods and said, these were blighted neighborhoods, and they gave it an A, B, C, or D designation. If they had a certain percentage of blacks in the, in the neighborhood, it was automatically given a D, no matter what the housing stock was. No matter what the housing stock condition was, they were given a D. Mm-hmm. Once they got that, once they got the D, that was a signal, and, uh, and, the, federal, and the Federal Housing Administration would not make loans, FHA gotcha. loans, to those neighborhoods for purchase or for upkeep or for refinancing. Mm-hmm. Consequently, lack of funding then drove down the value of these homes, the properties. Okay. I wanted to ask, too, just really quick, we're talking about definitions. We've heard the term gentrification. Is that similar to or the same as white flight, or are those two different things? Uh, Those are two different things, I would say. Um, Certainly, white flight, as we understand it, um, involves two decisions, right? It involves decisions of white households to exit uh, and then deciding where it is they ultimately want to relocate. And why it's important to make that distinction is because um, residential inequality, as it relates to decisions of mobility, can be perpetuated in both of those ways, right? So not only can white households choose to leave neighborhoods where non-whites are entering, but what the research consistently shows is that when you actually 
uh, do research that follows these households over time and examines, okay, when you have white households that leave, where do they move? Uh, the research consistently finds that almost universally these households never move into neighborhoods that were more diverse than the ones that they left. Right, So these patterns of white avoidance are also an important uh, consideration when understanding why residential segregation persists. Um, and so white flight is distinct from gentrification uh, in some ways to, to the extent that gentrification is this idea that um, white households or younger whites in particular move into these more diverse areas, uh, which then uh, begin to push out uh, black households in particular. Um, as these areas become, you know, places where Starbucks pops up or other white households move, it's this idea that uh, these neighborhoods become more white, and as a result, uh, these households that were often uh, populated by minority communities for decades are often pushed out, um, and often to even poorer communities. I want to follow up on on this in a minute, but we've we've reached almost our halfway mark, so we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I'm, I've, I have a lot of different areas I want to I want to investigate here, and I, and hopefully we'll get some callers that will join us on the program. I'm going to give the numbers again before we go to break: eight one two eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, or toll free at one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. From the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Joe Wren from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking about the Fair Housing Act of 1968 and a whole bunch of other issues that are, have sort of uh, sprung off of that main topic. Uh, we have two guests, Samuel Kai, a Ph.D. candidate in the IU Department of Sociology here in Bloomington, and Richard Pierce, Associate Professor of History and American Studies at the University of Notre Dame. You can join us on the program by calling 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Joe and I have a, kind of the same question. Yeah. I'm going to let him ask. Yeah, it. no, no. It's just I, you know, I feel like we get to the point now where we want to say, okay, well, what's next, or what, what's happening since then? Um, in the last 50 years, from what I've been reading, you know, I'm seeing statistics where rate of home ownership has um, remained unchanged in in 50 years. Um, 76 percent of applicants, African American applicants, saw discrimination in Marion County. So why hasn't, in the long term, why haven't much has changed? Richard, why don't we start with you? Um, okay, so the first reason, the first answer to that question is lack of enforcement. Um, when George Romney in 1970 was the head of HUD, he tried to enforce the Fair Housing Act by um, telling cities that if he didn't adhere to the Fair Housing Act, you would not get any federal subsidies or federal loans or federal grants. Um, he did that very effectively in Baltimore for one attempt, backed by Spiro Agnew. Um, and then Richard Nixon said that was too harsh and too 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 much. Um, it was just too harsh. 
and George Army was eventually removed from HUD. And effectively, we haven't had an effective enforcement of the Fair Housing Act yet. And, that was, and it's also because of the second factor, which is local laws are hard to unravel by the federal government. And the housing, as I said before, is one of the most intractable things. The protections that have been placed around housing have been the most intractable. And consequently, they're hard to remove. And, but, but quite frankly, I think that my, my personal answer is that there's no lack of enforcement. Yeah, I, I would largely very much agree with what Richard has said. Um, certainly, uh, when George Romney, as Richard expressed, uh, was the secretary of the Housing Urban Discrimination, the fact that uh, the HUD at that time had the teeth and the political clout to reject uh, grant applications from communities that have actively circumvented uh, the Fair Housing Act, uh, that was actually just a small window of time. Um, whereas since that time period, um, enforcement has been very lax. Um, you know, actually, under this administration, um, words such as inclusive and free from discrimination have been removed from HUD's mission statement. Um, and just so this idea that we as a country need to have uh, the political clout to, uh, in particular, overcome the, this complex web of zoning laws that makes the construction of affordable housing and multifamily unit housing uh, that makes it difficult for those types of uh, housing structures to be built, um, that would go a long way to uh, facilitating residential integration in the future. Um, so yeah, I think I'll leave it there um, and certainly build off of a lot of what Richard has said. Richard has one, a, one oh, caveat, if I may, yeah, and sure. this, this is something for perhaps your listeners. The Fair Housing Act didn't just target private entities and private homeowners, it also, it also attacked public housing, and the public housing may have been the, the, the largest offender, because for decades, public housing had been race-based. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Richard, as a, as a historian, you know, looking at, at the last 50 years, you know, how, how would you gauge the, the progress? Has there, has there been decent progress? Has there been no progress? There's been insufficient progress. Insufficient progress. Okay. And, and I would say um, the progress that has taken place has been episodic. Okay. And both episodic in time, in terms of time and location. Mm-hmm. So what what are the um, you know what are what are some key policy changes that you would like to see that you know if, if you could wave a, a magic wand and um, see some policy changes or is it just in the enforcement area? I think it's an enforcement. Mm-hmm. The Housing Act itself is not a bad act. It's not badly worded. It's not badly. It's just been badly implemented. Obama, President Obama, in 2015 tried to take another whack at it um, by threatening more enforcement, and even he had to back down largely. It, it just hasn't it hasn't been enforced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to build off what Richard is saying, um, you know, I think so. Yeah, when you look at the figures, right. Um, in 1968, the rate of black home ownership was 41.6%. Uh, 50 years later, that figure stands at 42.3%. So in a span of 50 years, uh, black home ownership has increased by less than a percentage point. Um, but what that figure belies is that uh, black home ownership did uh, reach about 50% um, in 2000 and in the years preceding the housing bubble. So what happened, right? Well, what the research has shown is that a lot of that home ownership was buttressed and facilitated by these predatory loans that once the housing bubble burst, um, many of these families were at risk to have their homes foreclosed, and that is ultimately what the the trends bore out. So I think what this indicates is that um, to this idea of enforcement, there are several areas that uh, we can regulate. Certainly one is uh, the disparities in predatory lending, uh, who gets offered subprime loans and why. Uh, There have been studies that have shown that even when you have two comparable families, one black, one white, and even when the black family has a higher earned income and can afford a more sustainable and affordable uh, loan, they get offered these predatory packages. Um, So that's certainly one area where we need to regulate. Uh, The other is disparities in lending. Um, Certainly in many of the studies to date, uh, borrowers of color were 60% more likely to to be denied a loan than similarly situated whites. So, you know, there are many areas where we can begin to tackle these things in practical and tangible ways, um, and those are just two to name. Mm-hmm. Those are excellent examples. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
I want to give our numbers again in case you have a, a comment or a question for our guests today, 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or toll-free. That could be from South Bend or anywhere else, uh, 1-877-285-9348. You can also uh, send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. I want to ask um, a question just about – that isn't all about um, – you know, the racial issue, but I think going back to the socioeconomic issue, uh, cities, our city, city of Bloomington, you know, medium-sized to small-sized town, um, has, you know, just says that housing is one of its very major issues. There's not enough affordable housing. Um, There is a continued move toward upper-end housing in the downtown area. I think a lot of people would point to gentrification in the downtown area. So uh, I guess for both of you, and and let's start with Richard, I mean, what can municipalities do to help make sure that that affordable housing, are there policy measures they can take to make sure that there is this mix of housing, that there are people who do have an equal opportunity to live in the places they want to live? Well, first of all, I'm trying to get my head around that Bloomington is gentrifying. I just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can't get my head around that. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll leave this this question largely to Samuel, I think. I think he probably has more interesting information to provide. But one thing I will say is that Harold Washington, back in the, in the beginning of the second term in Chicago, as Chicago's mayor, laid out a plan to have mixed income housing, which I think the sociologists agree, Samuel, tell me if I'm wrong, Agree is still the best plan going forward is to inter, inter, intersperse affordable housing into major developments. Mm-hmm. So I know New York has tried this with um, high-end housing. If they do a if they do a 12-story building, a certain percentage of the units have to be affordable. But again, there's been workarounds, and those haven't quite worked as as, as planned. So um, I, I my personal belief, and I don't I've never studied this. So Sam, this will help me out here. Um, <laughs> is to have mixed income housing and, and and so if a developer comes and says I'm gonna have a certain number of units, whether they be condo units, apartment units or, you know, single 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 family dwellings, um, some of them be set aside for mixed housing. I know that's what's taking place in South Bend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say it's part of the issue here in Bloomington too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, to um, build off this discussion of zoning laws, you know, there have been interesting studies that have examined, you know, how much of residential segregation is explained by uh, differences in zoning. So, for example, there was a study um, at Harvard that examined Boston and Houston metropolitan areas. And Boston is known for having very high segregation levels, but they also have extremely stringent zoning laws um, that just cover in a, a, a web of across these municipalities have very specific laws about what can be built. Um, whereas Houston is m- much uh, less stringently zoned um, and also has higher rates of or I should say, lower rates of residential segregation. And when you run a simulation and say, okay, if you were to just make zoning laws, uh, if you were to replace Boston zoning laws with just average levels of zoning as understood across metropolitan areas in the U.S., uh, nearly 75% of that difference in segregation between Boston and Houston is erased. Um, So, yes, this idea that we need to really... Uh, advance uh, more fair housing in terms of affordable housing and multifamily units, um, I I would like to um, reiterate that point. Um, You know, as far as it relates to gentrification, you know, I think picking back of of, uh, what Richard said in terms of Bloomington as a very unique type of place, you know, usually when we think of gentrification, we don't think of college towns. Um, And actually, part of the reason why my research examined the top 150 metropolitan areas is that you know, these areas, well, A, they tend to be where non-white groups uh, still tend to reside in large numbers today. But also, two, the dynamics are, you know, a little bit different than you would say in a place like Bloomington um, as opposed to Indy. But but one thing I did want to express to your listeners um, is, you know, given that I was going to be on the show today, I did want to look into the data uh, and see, you know, what types of trends are we seeing for Indiana? And, you know, when I looked into the data to see you know, is suburban white flight something that's happening um, in this state? You know, what I found was that, yes, uh, there were 26 instances of white flight from suburban neighborhoods in Indiana. And, you know, this occurred largely in the northwestern uh, tip of the of the state, uh, particularly in Lake County. 
um, we see two clusters of white flight, uh, one in the areas of northern Hammond, spanning down to the towns of Highland and Munster, and also two just west of Merrillville, uh, proximate to New Elliott and Crown Point communities. So I wanted to pitch this back to the host and uh, maybe Richard, who may have a better expertise of Indiana as a state. I'm a Philadelphia native, so you know I've been here for a few years, but I certainly am not as familiar with the state um, as my other guests. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting that's interesting finding because I would have guessed those two areas actually, and 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 the primary reason is because of the time zone. Those those areas still use like use um, Central Time Zone, and so we're having more and more Illinois natives or Illinois residents moving to Indiana, and they're exacerbating the flight. And I'm not sure if that captures people who move from local communities throughout to outside communities, but those communities, especially especially Laporte, is booming um, because of people moving from um, the Chicago area. I wanted to follow up to just really quick on when we're talking about the rate of home ownership, of black home ownership, and how it's remained unchanged. There are other factors. I, I feel I, we're of course talking about homes. We're talking about loans and rezoning, but there are other factors like like that's kind of I guess would be a trickle down effect too, like fair labor, uh, things like that. Are are there more factors that are outside of the actual um, realm of of housing that contributes to this? Well. The average white family has 11 times more in wealth than the average black family. It's 11 to 1, I think, is the current statistic. And that is intricately tied to, again, housing, you know, because most people generate more wealth through their housing than any other means. So if you take a community that has for 100 years, from 1865 to 1965, been either artificially prevented from um, maximizing their gains or, um, or organically, Presented from maximizing their gains, they haven't been able to generate the kind of wealth through home ownership that the average white family has been able to gather. And consequently, so any downturn in their economic in their income status threatens their livelihood, threatens their household anyway. So you know, we can't I, 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 we can't separate the fact that people have not been able to buy and own and and and, and profit from their home ownership. In, in most important, I think the most studies have been done after the after the World War II with the um, veterans benefits. And I don't know if you had those statistics or not, Samuel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think this idea of wealth and the absence of it um, is a very important thing to consider because, you know, again, when the housing bubble burst, the reason why this so disproportionately affected. Uh, black Mm -hmm. families and Latino families was they didn't have that safety net that white families had um, to uh, protect them from this sudden economic downturn. And as a result, you know, when you take into consideration residential segregation more broadly, um, right, who do people rely on when they face these crises? You know, your kin, your closest peers. And, you know, the reality is that residential segregation meant that a lot of these families returned to very poor and very segregated communities. You know, one interesting thing to note is that you know, when we think about housing inequality, well, what does that look like practically? Um, the reality is that when you look at uh, black families and Latino families up and down the entire income bracket, um, at, in every income bracket, those families tend to reside in neighborhoods that have much lower median household incomes yeah. than their white counterparts of the same uh, of the same earnings. You know, and to actually provide some specific figures, um, you know, a black household that makes around $60,000 lives in a neighborhood that is of comparable quality to very poor white households earning around $12,000 in earnings. So that that gap is just drastic. Um, And it just goes to show you that housing segregation is pernicious. And the plight of uh, even these middle class minority households in the types of neighborhoods that they can achieve is certainly very far and away removed from the same types of uh, neighborhoods that white families can enter and reside. So, okay, again, this is a simple question for a very complex <laughs> issue, but how do you close that gap? Uh, okay. <laughs> so, so, yes, a very broad question. Right. Yeah, You're absolutely right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. You know. You're talking to a historian, man. We're going to talk about the future. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I anticipated that I might get a question about solutions, and I just had a blank space in front of my computer for about 15 minutes just, right? It's a very broad question. And, you know, I'll start by saying that 
as a single individual with just an, a, an expertise for a small area of research, um, I'm hesitant to offer what I think is the magic bullet solution or gotcha. anything along those lines. Uh, but I will offer up some points, right? So one is this idea of enforcement that we very much discussed. Um, you know, certainly to the extent that we, again, as a country can develop the political clout to enforce the types of policies that were drafted in the spirit of the Fair Housing Act, that will go a long way um, to creating housing that is more equitable. Uh, but second, I think, you know, in light of the fact that racial... So I should start by saying that when you ask white households or when you do studies that examine, all right, who are these white households that flee and why are they fleeing? One interesting thing that pops up is that education is actually a very weak predictor of white flight. So this isn't, broadly speaking, an issue of right um, education or whether or not people are uh, being educated in terms of equitable housing and things like that. But what the research actually shows is that stereotypes are a very strong predictor of white flight. And that can be stereotypes of two kinds, right? One is stereotypes about, you know, uh, black families. So whether or not individuals think that, you know, uh, African-Americans are more likely to use welfare. But then there are also stereotypes about uh, black neighborhoods. Uh, but when it comes to residential segregation, you know, those differences are largely semantic. Stereotypes of both types have the effect of reproducing residential segregation. So, you know, to the extent that we as a society, as politicians, as media, as scholars can continue to make efforts to reduce the racial divisions that persist as a byproduct of sensationalization, racial profiling, and other forms of misleading representation, you know, I think that'll go a long way to, you know, realizing that you know, equitable housing is an issue for all groups that benefits us all as a whole. Well, yeah, I'll make a prediction if I have time. Sure. Um, I, I, I support everything Samuel just said. And, you know, we're more segregated now as a nation than we were in 1968 when the Fair Housing Act took effect. So I didn't want to say that earlier. <laughs> I thought that would kill our conversation. <laughs> like, how big does it end? Well, we're talking just... where we started. Um, and as for that comment about the Brown University study, about 90% of black and Latino families had to move to make racial balance more equitable. Um, I, given the wealth gap, and the wealth gap has been consistent, matter of fact, it was 10 to 1 for a long time. It went to 11 to 1. We all went, what? What happened? And then, and as Samuel pointed out, during the immediate years after the recession, it went up to like 20 to 1 because they, blacks lost their homes. And so um, the 42% of home ownership that he's talking about is probably going to decline going forward because housing is going to become more expensive. And if wealth hasn't generated and most people get their most whites, well, I'm not sure about most, but a significant portion of whites get their down payments or help from their down payments from their parents, well, that parents don't have the wealth to give it to them. So and with the decline of the public sector employee, which blacks have disproportionately worked for, the, worked for government sources, I, it's, 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 it's a dire forecast. Yeah. Um Maybe this would be a good time for a silver lining of sorts. <laughs> um, so, you know, one puzzle that I'll leave your listeners with is that actually when you examine white flight as an aggregate trend and you look at the specific age groups of, of whites who are leaving, uh, one interesting thing that pops up is that, you know, those whites ages 40 and up, so those with uh, children of school attending age and older white households, these are the moves that we traditionally think of as white flight, and they're consistent with white flight, right? They're moving to less diverse locations. But actually, when you examine younger whites, so older millennials or those of the millennial generation, uh, their mobility streams are actually two places that are more diverse. So this leaves us with an interesting puzzle, right? On one hand, this could be indicative of a sea change in attitudes, maybe because these individuals have grown up in much more diverse schools and more diverse communities. Maybe there is a, a willingness to reside in more, uh, more diverse communities. On the other hand, this could just be a cohort effect where these individuals, once they become of age, where they're thinking about their children or of schools, that they too begin to mimic the very same moves that we're seeing of these age groups today. Um, so time will tell, um, but you know, yeah, it's an interesting yeah, puzzle to consider. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, yeah, and the other thing that, that does reflect, doesn't it, Samuel? It also reflect, reflects that gentrification in process. Mm -hmm. Right, because right. They, they move to they move to more diverse communities, but those diverse communities may become less diverse over time. Like Brooklyn has become less diverse racially over time mm -hmm. than it was. 
before because you know it was like 10 years ago because the diversification has taken hold I think we have a couple more issues we want to definitely sure. get to in the last seven or eight minutes, Joe. Um, Richard, I know at the top of the show you said promoting integration, but that's a complicated issue or piece of this puzzle. Why Why is that? Well, I think race has been a proxy oftentimes used, but what we're really talking about is poverty. So if we were to look at poverty integration, we'd have a wholly different type of discussion because people tend to live above, among people of equal means, except, as Samuel mentioned earlier, except African-Americans who live with people who make less money than they do. So I think promoting immigrant integration as a governmental policy is going to face continued resistance. If it happens organically, uh, you know, there's no, I don't see any problem with it. But when it's a stated goal of governmental policy, people take get their get their get their heels dug in, and I think it's intractable. Well, uh, so I have a I have another. Uh, we don't have a political scientist here with us. We have a historian <laughs> and a sociologist. But I want to offer, uh, I guess, this thought for for your comments, and that is that the political divide is also um, creating uh, or adding to this housing division because people are living among Mm. other people who have the same political views. And I think if you look at the results of the the last election, and I listened to a Washington Post reporter go through slide after slide that showed these many divisions, and, you know, the the rural vote was for Trump, and the urban vote was for for Clinton. And, you know, they're, they're just these political divides that are are adding to this. I guess that's my supposition. Agree, disagree. There you go. Of course. Um, so, yeah, certainly I think, you know, this idea of political divisions just ties back to the idea of just, in general, we continue to be a society divided uh, along class and racial lines. Um, and so not to harp back on the same points, but again, you know, to the extent that we can uh, produce accurate depictions of the other, right, and really get around what are now becoming just exaggerated and misleading images of what it means to reside in a black community or what it means to reside in a diverse community, right? You know, what's mm-hmm. interesting is that, you know, when you ask folks about how, how much, cr- when you ask certain households how much crime they perceive or how much... Uh, you know, how much crime they perceive to be in black communities, right? It's often exaggerated because these stereotypes continue to distort the way we understand uh, what living in these communities, uh, what that means in terms of consequences. And even stereotypes like uh, when blacks move in, I have to move because my property values are going to go down. But but what the research actually shows, and this goes to the work that uh, uh, Richard cited by Rothstein, is that in fact, when you have black households that move in, property values go up because these black households are willing to pay even more to access these predominantly white communities. So the, the distance between what is reality and what is mm. our distorted perception is so vast. And if we can even begin to reduce that even at the margins, I think we will make strides um, to achieve what I think is you know, a goal that many of us desire to achieve. Mm-hmm. Richard? I think the, the 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 wealth generation is is a challenge going forward. But I will say, on a hopeful note, since we all want to be a spring and it's hopeful time of the year, um, more African Americans are going to college and they're getting college degrees, and hopefully those will um, translate into higher income positions, and they'll be able to afford homes outside of their native communities. Um, as as a, as the trends show, we're going to more of a coastal community versus a non-coastal community, which leaves those people, uh, those of us in Indiana out of the, out of the loop, I guess. Right. But um, well, we have Lake Michigan, so um, you know, that's, that's our coast. And I think that's, that's a challenge going forward is, is how, how will they replicate? Because the thing about Fair Housing Act and, and its enforcement, you know, for, for the last 50 years, we've had Democratic administrations, Republican administrations. The divide has not been about, about the political orientation, affiliation, it's just been their commitment to not enforcing the Fair Housing Act. Mm-hmm. We have so, one. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I know. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm done. Okay. Well, I, 
We have one question that came in from our booth, and I just wanted to make sure and, and give you an opportunity to talk about it. And the question, it's it's actually kind of a comment. It says, I'd love to, to hear uh, what the panelists think about the Starbucks incident and does it relate to, you know, segregation and what spaces are, are, are black people allowed in or, or welcome in? Yeah, so, you know, again, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, so this was right in my backyard. And, you know, so what's interesting about Philadelphia is that it's a city where uh, 43% of its residents are black. But the particular zip code in which this incident took place is an area that is 79% white and 6% black, right? So what this indicates is that within the, the, the city of Philadelphia, this is very much a white space uh, that people are uncomfortable with when they see, um, you know, when, they, when things are outside of the norm, right? And so I think this is also indicative of, you know, right, an individual within an institution making a decision that, you know, perpetuates the types of inequalities we see. And these very same types of decisions, these very, very same types of stereotypes are, again, things that are, are replicated across the country exponentially in things like um, housing studies and you know, work studies. Um, and so, yeah, I would say it's indicative, again, of the fact that these types of stereotypes uh, very much persist in reproducing the types of housing inequalities that we see. Richard, we're about out of, we're out of time. Uh, unless you've got a, a burning 10-second response. Yes, I think we should have a topic on the fact that the Women's National Championship in NCA and yep. WNIT <laughs> came, both came from the state of Indiana, and that should be heralded. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> we do, there's common ground. All right. That's great. All right. Thank you very much. I want to thank our guest. That was Richard Pierce, Associate Professor of History and American Studies, University of Notre Dame, and Samuel Kai, a PhD candidate at the IU Department of Sociology is here in the studio. Thank you, Samuel. Thank you. And for Joe Wren and our uh, producer, Angelo Batista, engineer, Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.